Education is what can save us from the collapse of our system. Our guest today is Richard Wolff. He's Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and currently a visiting professor at the New School in New York. The New York Times calls him America's most prominent Marxist economist. He's the author of numerous books, including Democracy at Work and The Sickness is the System. He spoke in early April. And now, Richard Wolff. I am going to talk about the economic and political and social crisis of the United States at this time. And I'm going to do it borrowing from a wonderful Christian philosopher of a long time ago, a German named Hegel. And uh, his greatest student, by the way, was Karl Marx. And my work is influenced by both of those enormously productive thinkers. Hegel's contribution was to teach us that all things that we can think about, all things that are in the world, are, as he put it, in a perpetual state of contradiction and change. We know that from popular wisdom, which says every good thing has a bad side, every bad thing has a good side, Every blessing is also enwrapped in a curse and vice versa. Hegel made this comment in a general philosophic way. His student, Karl Marx, applied it to the economic system of his time, capitalism, which has survived until it's also the economic system of our time. And he said that it has its good parts, but it also has its bad parts. And that the dynamic of change of capitalism is a struggle, if you like, a contest, a shifting balance between the positive and the negatives as they change each other and as they are changed by the larger context of nature, of history, and of all the cultural phenomena of our lives. Please keep this balance of the positive and the negative in your mind, because I'm going to try to explain what the problems of U.S. capitalism are, and they are daunting. And I'm also going to conclude by talking about a way out, a way forward, building on certain positivities of this capitalist system that give us a chance to get out of the dilemmas that are crowding in on us. So let me begin. I believe we are in a period of time which can best be captured by the following somewhat scary understanding. The American period of empire which is now roughly a hundred years old. We became the dominant economic power in the world as a result of World War I. In that war, the dominant capitalist country of the previous two centuries, namely Great Britain, 
was finally destroyed. The only other contender for dominant economic power at that time, 100 years ago, was Germany. And what basically happened was that the German and British empires destroyed one another in that great conflagration, World War I, which also took down virtually every other aspiring would-be economic empire, the Austro-Hungarian, the French, and so forth. What emerged was a century of U.S. economic dominance. It was a century in which American capitalism grew spectacularly, consolidated its global position after World War II, literally by doing something no empire had done before. Even the British Empire, with its far-flung colonial system, of which the United States had been a part, even the British Empire could not and did not equal what the United States was able to accomplish between 1921 and now. The dollar became the world currency that everybody basically used. I'm assuming most of you know that even to this day, most of the central banks that govern the financial world around the world keep a disproportionate portion of their reserves, what they have to back their currencies in holdings of U.S. dollars. No other country comes close in the last hundred years to the economic, political, military, and cultural dominance the United States achieved. Our culture, based on advertising, became dominant around the world. Our culture, based on movies, radio, television, book publishing, and I could go on, became dominant globally. And the bases, the military bases, thousands of them scattered across all continents had never been seen in the history of the world before. A heady time and not fundamentally threatened by anyone. I know this goes against the grain of what many have been taught, but it is typical of empires to downplay at the same time that they celebrate their empire. There's that Hegelian contradiction. On the one hand, you flaunt your power and your wealth. On the other hand, you hide it. You kind of don't want some of the seedier parts to get out there, and so you hide it. Let me give you just one example. At the end of World War I, the Russian Empire was also destroyed alongside the Austrian, the French, and the Germans and the British. But the collapse of the Russian Empire took a peculiar, unusual form. 
in the collapse of that empire, a small radical political movement known as the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party was able to move quickly to take political power in the collapsing empire. An empire collapsing because the Russians were the first country to withdraw from World War I because they had lost it. The collapse of Russia, the collapse of its empire, the loss it suffered in World War I gave this socialist party, Russian Democratic Socialist Workers' Party, a chance to seize power, which it did. And it proclaimed against capitalism. But there was something ludicrous in all of this because the capitalism of the rest of the world, the United States leading, but also Britain, France, Germany, and so on, made the small anti-capitalism that succeeded in Russia look ridiculously puny and weak. We should remember that Russia in 1917, when the revolution there occurred, was the poorest, most backward part of Europe, a place in which the vast majority of people were illiterate and were agricultural peasants. But the United States was sufficiently frightened by the very tiny, ludicrous Russian revolution that together with the British and the French and the Japanese sent troops, landed in Russia to overthrow the new socialist government. 10,000 American troops were sent to Russia to overthrow their government. Nothing comparable ever happened in reverse. No Russian troops ever arrived in the United States to overthrow anything. It might make you wonder about the rationale for much of the second half of the 20th century of viewing the Soviet Union as the threat to the United States when the only credible basis for who threatens whom runs exactly the other way. But so it is with empires. They hide the parts of themselves that are not so positive while they trumpet and celebrate those that are. So let's quickly review. The United States became in the last hundred years the richest country basically in the world, the dominant economic power. To give you an example, even in the 1970s, when this whole situation peaked, the United States was able to maintain a global ring of bases while being at the same time more capable of giving its working class a high standard of living than any other country in the world, and certainly any major country. So successful so robust had been its capitalism's growth 
aided by the weakness, of course, of all the potential competitors who not only destroyed each other in World War I, but basically a few years later did it again in World War II. So there were no effective competitors, no minor matter, as we will see when I conclude today, because today we do have a competitor and a very powerful one. But we had none for the 20th century, and we took full advantage. We became very rich and very powerful, able to distribute our culture and our social values globally, sometimes peacefully and sometimes with an endless series of foreign military interventions, especially in Latin America, but globally. And we are still trying to do that. We did it 20 years ago in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the difference between those interventions and some of the earlier ones in the 20th century has to be faced. These most recent ones are failures. We went into Afghanistan and the Taliban, our ostensible enemy, is stronger today than it was when the United States intervened. And the opposition to the United States in Iraq is also now stronger than what it was when the United States arrived. Whatever else these interventions accomplish, they are a sign that the rest of the world has not missed, even if Americans can't quite face it, that the empire is over. And I need you at least to begin to face that if you haven't already, because a society on the downside of empire is a very different place from the society on the upswing towards its empire peak. If you want to understand our future, look at the last two years of the United Kingdom, because its decline is the image of where we are headed. Britain is now a small, cold, wet, offshore islands of Europe. It is unable, even to this day, to face the reality that what happens in London is a minor detail in world history rather than being the center of it. And the odd peculiarities of British history over the last century are full of insights into what we are going through now. But more than foreign, I want us to concentrate on the United States. And what are the signs of a declining empire we need to think about. And of course, there are many, 
and I only have time to focus on two or three. But they need to be understood in this context. I'll start with COVID, this viral pandemic we are going through. The United States has 4% of the world's population. But we account for 20% of the world's deaths from COVID. Don't forget that statistic. It screams its message if you're only able to hear it. We are a very wealthy country, among the wealthiest in the world. We have a highly developed medical care system. Medical schools, clinics, hospitals, you name it. We, we are the home of major pharmaceutical and, and medical device makers. We have an elaborate health insurance industry. We have what it takes to face and deal with a virus. Countries much less wealthy and much less well-served by a medical system. And let me mention a few to you. Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, Cuba, I could go on, were able to achieve tiny fractions of the cases we have, tiny fractions of the deaths we have suffered. And that's the case whether you look at the country as a whole or you work it all out on a per-person basis. They've outperformed us. The People's Republic of China, with a population four times that of the United States, has a tiny fraction of the number of cases and deaths. What in the world is going on? That's a level of failure that is catastrophic, not just in the suffering of all the families touched by this virus, but for all of the rest of us as well, as we confront what is going on here, how do we account for this? And however much you might like to blame this or that politician, and I include here Donald Trump, you could not possibly explain this failure on one or another individual or one or another political party. Let me give you a, another example, one that's in the news, right? The United States ranks very low on the quality of our so-called infrastructure, our roads, our highways, our bridges, our rail system, our, you name it, all of the things that support our society on a literal minute-by-minute -minute basis. We as a nation have let the care of the infrastructure, which always has to be maintained because it's always wearing out, 
an infrastructure, as Hegel would have enjoyed telling us, is both a producer of good results in sustaining our society and a deteriorating entity that undermines it. It is, as Hegel liked to say, in contradiction or experiencing or expressing its own dialectic. The language doesn't matter. The idea is simple. Something about American capitalism fails to attend to the infrastructure, allows it to fall apart. Well, we know the answer, and I'm going to give it to you quickly. It's not profitable to prepare for a virus, you see. A company that makes masks or gloves or ventilators or hospital beds does not want to produce these things, then stockpile them in warehouses around the country, maintain them, repair them, clean them, secure them for an indefinite amount of time until the next virus comes along. That's not profitable. That's too risky. So the private companies that could have produced the tests and masks and everything else we need didn't do so. They found more profitable investments elsewhere. And that's how our system of capitalism works. So they invested elsewhere. And when the virus came, we couldn't handle it. Wow. And why don't we have an infrastructure that's decent? Because once again, we manage it in a way that is fundamentally a failure. Here's what we do. We say it's the government's job to maintain roads, highways, bridges, etc. And the government is given that task. Okay, but this takes a lot of money. So the government has to get a lot of money to perform its task. Where does it get the money? It gets the money by taxing corporations, individuals, And guess what? In our culture, corporations and individuals don't want to pay taxes. The mass of people basically can't because their incomes aren't enough. And the corporations don't want to, even though they could. And the rich don't want to, even though they could. And so they use their wealth to make sure that the politicians don't tax them. Well, if you can't tax the mass of people and you won't tax the corporations and the rich, you won't have the money to sustain the infrastructure. And since the collapsing infrastructure conveniently collapses slowly, each politician can avoid it until he or she moves up the political ladder leaving the declining infrastructure to whoever comes next. And we are now stuck with an infrastructure that hobbles American capitalism when compared to capitalisms that have behaved differently. 
And now let give me let me give you the third example. We have allowed our capitalist system to reestablish a level of inequality that is literally mind blowing. We are returning to levels of inequality last seen in ancient Egypt or the Middle Ages. Let me pick Jeffrey Bezos. His personal assets now are about $200 billion. That's right. We give to one individual an amount of money that is more than the total income of many countries in the world, encompassing many millions of people. Mr. Bezos is one of about 600 of America's richest, the 600 whose personal wealth is a billion dollars or more. Together, these people increased their wealth over the last 12 months by more than $1 trillion. Let me hammer this home. Over the last year, roughly 60, 60, 60 million Americans, more than one-third of the labor force, had to go and get unemployment insurance. Some of those millions have been unemployed for the entire year, some only a few weeks. But we know that when you are unemployed, you quickly use up whatever savings you have, and the American working class doesn't have many savings. You suffer all kinds of mental and physical impairments. You lose contact with your fellow workers, your skills. You become a burden on your family. That's why rates of alcoholism, divorce, child abuse all go up during unemployment. The social costs beyond measure. 60 million, more than a third of the workforce, means that every family, with a very few exceptions, had either mama or papa or cousin or grandma or you name it, out of work, leaning on the rest of the family to help get through this. That catastrophe for the mass of the American people stands in contrast to the growing wealth of over a trillion dollars by the people who were already the richest people in the country. That's a system that is failing. Well, you might say, yes, we've had those in the past. Yes, we have. But in the last hundred years of America's ascendancy, before it peaked, we congratulated ourselves on having, quote, a vast middle class, having, quote, a system that's like a rising tide that lifts all boats, having a commitment to equality, having a commitment 
to everybody being able to anticipate and work to achieve the American dream. All that is over. It's important that we face this reality. That's Richard Wolf on transitioning to democratic enterprises. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program, as well as Noam Chomsky's book, Consequences of Capitalism, by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. We can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. We don't have to worry, as the Biden administration does, about how and where to pay for the infrastructure program, which, by the way, is pegged at $2 trillion dollars. More than half of it could be immediately paid for if we simply taxed the wealth increase over the last 12 months of the already 600 billionaires in America who would remain, if we levied such a tax, the richest people in America and the world, only we wouldn't have to worry about fixing our infrastructure. But in our system, what I just said seems now to be unthinkable. Well, maybe if you understood that this grotesque inequality and the failure around COVID and the failure of our infrastructure management are all signs of something that is declining. It is the American empire. Now, let me turn, before I tell you what I think is the way out, to one more dimension. There is now a real competitor. The way there wasn't in the 20th century. And you all know who that competitor is. It's the People's Republic of China. They have achieved an absolutely extraordinary economic development. As extraordinary in its way as the achievement of economic development was in the United States which in turn was an advance on the achievement of global superiority that the British Empire had acquired before. The rise and fall of empires is not new. It's a very old, often repeated part of of world history. There was never any reason to doubt that the American empire would be born, would grow, would evolve, and would decline. We are now declining. These are the signs. 
But there is a capitalism, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that, a capitalism that is competing with us now. It is, in a sense, where the dynamic of capitalism has moved in the last 40 years. That dynamic, which was once located in the British economic system and the British empire, and then moved to the American economic system and the American empire, has now moved again, as its movements have always moved it again. Only this time it moved to China. That's where it has established itself. And it has grown over the last four decades much faster than the British Empire ever did and much faster than the American Empire ever did. Let me give you just a couple of statistics to show you what I mean. Over the last 25, 30 years, the United Nations and many other institutions keep track of the growing economic output of goods and services in each country. The shorthand way of describing that is the GDP, the gross domestic product of each country. It's measured for the United States, for China, and for all other countries. Over the last 25 years, the average rate of growth of the GDP in the United States was between 2 and 3% per year. Over the same period of time, the average rate of growth of the GDP of the People's Republic of China was 6 to 9%. In other words, for 30 years, China has grown much much faster than the United States. There is no way to pretend that that didn't happen, even though most leading Republican and Democratic politicians do their level best not to acknowledge or face or discuss or analyze what I just said. To show you what it means, over the last 20 years, the average real income of the worker in China has quadrupled. That means in the memory of the working class in China, they had never seen or heard in the history of China for centuries of a growth in their standard of living comparable to what they have now achieved. Over the same 30 years, the real wage, the real standard of living of American workers has gone exactly nowhere. It's stagnant. Their incomes go off the charts. The American working class goes nowhere. If you adjust the increase in money wages Americans have gotten, for the prices they have to pay, they're no better off now than they were 30 years ago. 
And you all kind of know that because the only way that the American working class has been able to continue to consume at the level they have is because they have found another way to pay for it. Their wages couldn't. You know what they did? They went into debt, mortgage debt, car payment debt, credit card debt, and now the remarkable one, student debt. Vast indebtedness, hobbling every family 10 different ways. That's the price paid when an economy goes down, when an empire is in decline. These are the signs. Okay, let me then conclude and tell you how I think we might escape the risks, the pitfalls, the dangers of an economy and an empire in decline. There is an aspect to all of this that is crucial to think about. We allow in our society a tiny minority of people to make most of the crucial economic decisions that are now playing themselves out in the unsolved problems accumulating for American capitalism. The COVID problem, the infrastructure problem, the inequality problem, but you know what else? The racial divisions in this country, the political polarization, all of it. Who are these tiny people? Not some conspiracy. We don't need that. We know where the decisions are made. Here's the answer, and here's the way out. We organize our enterprises in a very particular way. And I'm talking about our factories, our offices, our stores, and indeed the institutions that model themselves on the enterprises, like the hospitals, like the schools, and so on. Each organization, each enterprise has this same basic organization. At the top is a tiny group of people, the owner of the enterprise. If it's a corporation and they do most of the enterprise work in the economy of the United States, if it's a corporation, this tiny group is called the board of directors, usually 10, 20 people. That's it. Elected, by the way, by the owners. And who are the owners? The shareholders. And what do we know about shareholders? The 10% richest share owners in this country own 80% of all the shares. So it's a tiny minority, the owners, if you like, the board of directors they create, the top executives they call in to run the business. This is a tiny group of people, 10, 20, 30, 40, that's it, who make all the decisions. Those decisions impact all of the employees 
who it is important to understand are excluded from those decisions. They have to live with the result of those decisions, but they are excluded from participating in making them. So, for example, when hundreds of American companies decided over the last 40 years to close or shrink operations in the United States while moving or opening them in the People's Republic of China, this was a job for a Chinese worker and it was a lost job for an American worker, wasn't it? The workers didn't make those decisions. They are required to live with them, but they are excluded inside every enterprise from making them. When an enterprise decides to replace workers with machines, who makes that decision? The owner, the director, the tiny minority. When I told you the story about the profit-maximizing decisions that led the companies in America not to produce the masks, the, the testing equipment, the hospital beds to fight COVID. Those decisions were made by a tiny group of people. And here's the best example. If you allow a tiny group of people at the top of every factory store or office to make all the key decisions, you're saying that the profits, the net revenue generated in every enterprise flows into the hands of those who make the decisions at the top. And is it really surprising that if you organize your enterprises that way, the people who have the profits into their hands at the top distribute them, here we go now, to themselves. Hello, is this a surprise that the bulk of the profits get handed out as dividends to shareholders or handed out as whopping salaries to CEOs? How could you possibly find this surprising? Or to say the same thing in a different way, how do you imagine this problem is going to be solved here comes the punchline. If you do not change the organization of enterprises. Well, some of you, and I am now going to conclude, some of you may imagine that this problem can be solved by appealing to our political leaders. You know, the people who sit at the top of the pyramid of the two-party monopoly that controls American politics. But if you think that, you really are being unrealistically naive. The few at the top of every enterprise long ago understood that they are in danger. The wealth they have accumulated, the power that they wield, their exclusion of the mass of people over whom they wield power from any participation 
which, by the way, is the definition of the absence of democracy. Those people knew they were at risk because we do have a universal suffrage commitment in our society. We all vote, and the overwhelming majority of us are employees. So there's always the danger, if we vote, that we'll vote in somebody who would undo what the economic capitalist system we have keeps doing. They know it. It's we who have been slow to figure it out. So they made sure to buy the political system, to make sure that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're not going to face anything like what I've been talking about for the last 45 minutes, that it's not going to be on the agenda. So to look to them to come up with a program is, in my humble opinion, hopeless and pointless. They cannot, they will not, they never have, and they're not about to now. All Mr. Biden's talk about infrastructure boils down to this. He's going to hand out, if he gets his way, $2 trillion to countless companies and government officials. The government officials will then take the money and hand it out to companies will be hired to do various things, like rebuild roads and highways. But they will do it in the way they normally do, giving themselves the lion's share of the money, dictating how, when, and where it's done, using good part of the money to automate so they're more profitable in the future when this program is over. They will do as they always have done, reproduce a system that they sit at the top of is their number one commitment. That's all profit maximization has ever meant. So if you want to solve the problem, if you want the way down of a declining economy not to be handled as it has been by offloading the pain and the difficulty of empire decline onto the mass of the people so that the super rich at the top can indulge their fantasies that their dominant global position isn't over, then there is a way to do this. You have to change the organization of enterprises. People have always understood somewhere beneath the layers of ideological indoctrination They've always understood that there is an alternative. And that alternative can best be summarized this way. Democratize the enterprise. Finally bring democracy to the workplace where it should have been all along. And here's what I mean, so there's no mistake. The enterprise, the workplace, becomes a place where every man and every woman has a vote, an equal vote, one vote per person. And together, collectively and democratically, we'll decide what the company or enterprise produces in the way of goods or services, what technology it uses, 
where it conducts its business. And here comes the big one, how to utilize the profits that everybody who works there has contributed to producing. Here's what I can guarantee you. If these decisions were made democratically by everyone, you would never give billions of dollars to a handful of people while everybody else cannot afford to send their kid to college. Not gonna happen. Here's another decision that wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have sent all your factories to China. You wouldn't have done that. Here's another example. If there's a new technology that is terribly bad for your air or your water or your ears, you would have voted not to use that technology. Why? Because you don't live in a gated community 50 miles away. You don't live in an office that can be soundproof. You're a worker, and therefore the technology's costs are borne by you. And if you made the decision, you would balance profits. Yeah, you want those against your sanity and your health. Because, yeah, you want those. If workers collectively and democratically owned and operated the enterprises, they wouldn't be profit maximizers. Because profit maximizing is running an enterprise to maximize something that goes to a tiny group of people. A cooperative enterprise maximizes a whole range of things that reflect what's valuable and important for all of the people there. The passion Americans sometimes bring to democratic values in politics have been peculiarly unapplied to economics with the kinds of disastrous results I have listed for you today and that you know. Cooperation is not just a nice, warm, cuddly, good thing to do. Cooperation is what can save us from the collapse of our system that we are now entering onto. The aggressor in the United States-China dispute is the United States. We're not happy, we say, with their lack of freedom in Hong Kong. Really? I'm not going to defend anything that they do. But the notion that the United States, which is now for 20 years destroying Afghanistan, Iraq, and countless others, is hardly in a position to question our treatment of our African-American brothers and sisters is not getting us sanctioned by other countries, but we're sanctioning the Chinese because they treat their Muslim minority This is the country that banned Muslims from coming here? That has a problem with physically assaulting Muslims and now Asia? What is going on here? The United States is disputing China's rights in a place called the South 
China Sea. You know why it's called that? Because it's over there. They're not in the Caribbean disputing our position there. What's going on here are bizarre, and there are more signs, as I told you, of a declining empire flailing around, desperate to hold on to what it no longer is. We need the transition to a democratically organized enterprise, not only because it's democratic, but because it's the one way forward that can allow us to do what needs to be done for our public health, for our egalitarian values. Otherwise, the prospect is for more in the future. And that prospect alone should persuade us. That was Richard Wolff on Transitioning to Democratic Enterprises. Richard Wolff is Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and currently a visiting professor at the New School in New York. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Richard Wolf on Transitioning to Democratic Enterprises, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Consequences of Capitalism, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
Welcome to CJSW 90.9 FM, where the sun never sets and the fun never stops. Broadcasting in Calgary, located on Treaty 7 land and Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Here you will find relaxation and your heart's delight. Listen away, for we are your ray of sunshine. <laughs> 